I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Last fall, former Secretary of State John Kerry launched a major initiative designed to focus laser-like attention on the threat that climate change posed to the future of the planet. Calling his new coalition World War Zero, Kerry recruited former presidents Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, former Republican governors Arnold Schwarzenegger and John Kasich, and Hollywood celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio to participate in town hall meetings and other events around the country that Kerry hoped could lead to wartime mobilization to address the issue. But as he was about to get started, the coronavirus pandemic hit, upending daily life and distracting the country's attention. And yet, the existential threat posed by climate change has hardly gone away. We'll talk to Kerry about his initiative and what lessons can be learned from the country's COVID-19 shutdown on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, yeah, the best laid plans. Kerry was, uh, had been working for some time to uh, mount this major uh, initiative, World War Zero. He lines up all these uh, big names, has all these big ambitious plans. And, of course, if you had listened to any public health experts or scientists back three or four months ago, they all would have said climate change is the major existential threat we are facing as a country. It's been completely overshadowed now by the pandemic, but it's hardly gone away. Okay, well, first of all, this actually in a very small way affected skullduggery as well, because we were supposed to interview Secretary Kerry about his uh, World War Zero initiative at uh, South by Southwest on the podcast stage. We were really looking forward to that, and it was canceled because South by Southwest was canceled because of the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. And I remember just a few weeks ago, Kerry and Kasich and Schwarzenegger giving interviews, um, TV interviews in Columbus, Ohio, to launch this initiative. The pandemic had already started, but it hadn't really hit our shores in a big way, and they I think they had something like 2,000 people gathered for a um, for their first town hall. Now, now everything they're doing, like the rest of us, is just virtual, and that has got to be tough. But I will say, look, there are some silver linings in all of this, I think, for this initiative. One of them is that the kind of global response to this pandemic, which took a while to get off the ground and is still a work in process, shows that international action and leadership can actually make a significant difference. That's one. And the second point is, um, here we are in a moment where we are all listening to 
public health experts and scientists and putting a great amount of credibility in what they say. This is a moment where truth and facts and data are the difference between life and death. And that, I think, has focused a lot of people on this question of science and the importance of listening to science. That is a powerful message for people who are advocating for a response to the climate crisis. Whether they can kind of seize that and, and put it in a bottle is hard to know. But Well, I think you also it is have to wonder, by the way, you know, to what extent some of what we're doing now, such as working at home, such as you know, virtual meetings, Zooming uh, meetings everybody's having, whether that can carry over after this uh, pandemic begins to subside. And we continue with that for the purpose of cutting down on CO2 emissions. Um, yeah, now, now the, the other side of that, if you listen to the conversation that's going right now, the debate over opening up the country, as Trump likes to say, or continuing with some of these uh, restrictive measures to prevent the spread of the disease, I don't think this administration is going to be in a mood to make any economic sacrifices for the sake of fighting climate change. So it, you can cut this in different ways, and we'll just have to see what happens. Well, not this administration, but uh, there is an election this year in which we may get a new administration uh, that might take a different perspective. But certainly the tension there between economic health and growth and uh, doing something in the long-term interests of everybody to curb uh, carbon emissions is uh, is going to be an issue with us for some time. So uh, why don't we get right to the former Secretary of State and hear what he has to say. Okay, we now have with us the former Secretary of State, the former longtime senator from Massachusetts, the former presidential candidate, John Kerry. Secretary Kerry, welcome to Skullduggery. I'm happy to be with you. Happy to be with you. There's too much skullduggery out there. <laughs> and uh, that's what keeps us in business. So you started this group, World War Zero, late last fall to try to bring world attention and uh, American attention to the ongoing threat of climate change. No sooner do you start to get off the ground than the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic hits. What has the pandemic done and meant for the plans you had to focus attention on climate change? Well, it's forced us, I mean, it has cut off our ability to be able to do significant uh, people events, which is what we had started doing. We had a terrific town hall meeting in Columbus, Ohio, with former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and former Governor John Kasich of Ohio. Uh, we had about 2,000 people there. It was really interactive, terrific. It was a great start to a process we were going to take around the country. For the time being, that now has to become virtual, digital. And so next week, we're going to hopefully launch in the context of Earth Day, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. We hope to do a few town halls with different people in which we will interact, we hope, with all those invited. And, and obviously, the audience uh, is limitless in terms of people who could come to the table, but uh, we'll see what people decide to do. The 
other thing we're going to do, which we're always intending to do, was have conversations with more than 10 million Americans through social media. And we're still in the process of raising money. And anybody who listens to your broadcast, I hope will go to worldwarzero.com and help contribute on a grassroots basis because we want to be able to reach the 70% of America that says they're deeply concerned about climate change, but haven't yet been motivated to engage in the kind of activities uh, to help make a difference. So our purpose is to educate, to reach out, to motivate, to energize people to realize that we can make a difference. We still have time to win the battle, to defeat the crisis, uh, but we've got to be engaged in order to do it. Secretary, I know we're going to have a lot of follow-up questions on the pandemic and, and what that reveals about the ability of the global community to react to a crisis, which is obviously relevant to what you're doing. But I just wanted to back up for a moment and let you talk a little bit about what is unique about this initiative. And specifically, I saw in some of uh, your kind of promotional literature that you're talking about going into parts of the country where these issues um, you know, where people have not been all that engaged, economically depressed areas, military bases. Clearly, uh, we are also dealing with a kind of chronic political polarization in this country, which kind of also affects how the message gets out. It makes it sound a little bit like you think that the climate crisis movement in this country has a bit of of a branding problem, that this is a time when populism is on the rise, elites are scorned, you know, celebrities are mocked. Are you trying to kind of, as part of this initiative, rebrand the climate crisis fight? Well, we we haven't specifically set out to change uh, that or to criticize it or in any way undermine other terrific efforts by people, all of whom are coming at it in different ways. I mean, the young people in our country have been absolutely spectacular. And they're the ones who are trying to hold adults to account. And I give them enormous credit. Climate strike, sunrise movement, these efforts deserve enormous credit because they're acting where adults haven't acted. And they're demanding accountability, which is appropriate. So, But what we are trying to do that is different is we have people coming to the table to be part of this coalition who have never before come together in that kind of a coalition and who are stepping out to say, hey, wait a minute, folks, uh, you know, we don't want this to fall victim to a whole bunch of, of uh, labels and sort of easy political hits. This is real. And when you hear this is real from world-renowned scientists or military leaders, I mean, we have Stanley, General Stan McChrystal has signed up. He's part of this. He's the leader of our special forces. He's the guy who helped us uh, go out and get uh, Osama Laden. But he and many other military leaders know that this is a threat multiplier. The climate change, the crisis of climate, is a threat multiplier that our troops will be called on to deal with some of the issues that arise because of it. And they see enormous threats to military readiness, to the ability to protect America. So I think when you get a group of people like that, then you get a group of business people, people who are hiring and creating new jobs and who are creating the products and uh, driving our economy. They're stopping and saying, wait a minute, this is going to cost the business a whole lot more money if we don't get it right. This is going to prevent our ability to be able to have normal markets in the world. I mean, if all of a sudden people are running out of water 
in places where it's already scarce. You're going to have mass movement of people. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have uh, you know, security threats as a result of that. People banging on the door of Europe to get into Europe as they were from Syria as refugees, but this time from the whole Horn of Africa if it fails because of climate uh, crisis. Uh, so I think we have to look ahead here. We have to be part of being leaders is being visionary, looking around the corner, what's coming at us. In many ways, the coronavirus is an example of that kind of situation where if you don't look at it ahead of time, if you're not ready to move quickly, uh, you're going to wind up spending trillions of dollars, which is exactly what we're doing. Yeah. Picking up on that point, um, some people have seen a parallel between the reluctance of uh, some in Washington, starting with the Trump White House, to take seriously the warnings of uh, public health experts and scientists about the virus, particularly in those early months, January and February, and the skepticism about climate science that uh, we've heard in many quarters in Washington. And I just wonder if you see a parallel there. Well, there's no, yes, there is a parallel. We've had 25 years of people doubting science, claiming on an ideological basis that we don't have to move, we don't have to do things, and proposing to Americans a completely contrived, artificial choice. They say, if we do what the people that want to solve climate want to do, we're going to hurt our economy. It's going to hurt your jobs. It's going to take away your quality of life. That's a lie. That's a complete and total fabrication of the choice that we face. The choice we actually face is one of making our lives better, having a higher quality of life, being healthier. After all, the cause of, uh, of the climate crisis is the result of pollution and people have to remember, it's not some harmless gas or some. it's pollution. And it is pollution that goes up into the atmosphere and, and winds up heating up uh, planet Earth. And, and this has been documented now for years. We just had the hottest January in human history. We just had the hottest day in that January in human history. And if you look at the entire year that that January fit in, you have the hottest year in human history, which is part of the hottest decade in human history, which is, you know, followed by, uh, preceded by the second hottest decade, preceded by the third hottest decade. So, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a nuclear physicist to understand something's happening. Farmers know this all across America. People know it. Ask President Remengensau, who I'm sure most people in America have never heard of, He's the president of Palau, Pacific Islands. 20 years ago was sounding this alarm bell, and today he doesn't have the option of mitigation or adaptation. He's trying to figure out where the people of his nation are going to move to. Where are they going to live? This is happening to people all around the world now. And so my, uh, my hope is that uh, this parallel to what's happened with, with COVID, you know, with, with Corona virus, the first death was in China on December 1st. When we first moved in our country, 70 days had gone by, during which the administration just brushed it off, said it's going to go away, you know, a miracle going to occur, we'll be 
you know, only a few people have it. It'll be one. I mean, I think the president said one person from China and so forth and so on. Well, now almost 31,000 people have died as we're in America alone, as we're talking. And and I think it's 570 or so or 600 some thousand are now suffering from coronavirus. The point I'm making is that, you know, we used to have a standard in, in the United States where we believed science, where we listened to scientists. We didn't take it at automatic face value, but we would have comparative analysis. Well, guess what? In the last 20 years, there have been more than 6,000 peer-reviewed studies, all of them saying human beings have contributed to this problem, and it's a problem that could be catastrophic. There isn't one genuinely peer-reviewed study that says to the contrary. So, you know, we, we've got to govern ourselves with thoughtfulness, but with some baseline of truth, Mike and Dan, I think you know that. We used to be able to have those conversations. Now there's an ideological thrust, uh, which is uh, trying to deny science and deny the facts. Do you think, Secretary Kerry, that there's a uh, possibly a, a moment to seize on here when when scientists like uh, Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, uh, you know, have impressed so many Americans, met, you know, medical doctors and scientists, uh, in some sense, are the kind of today's rock stars? Are you going to try to capitalize on that for the fight against climate change? I, I capitalize is the wrong word. What we're going to do is ask people who are good validators, people who have the ability to be able to speak out on it, to come out and speak out and join up. That's why we have Republicans and Democrats alike who are part of World War Zero. World War Zero is not, we're not going to endorse candidates. We're not going to um, be involved directly in an election, what we're going to try and do is educate people and let people make their own decisions. But I think the voices that we're assembling, people who have come from very diverse backgrounds and diverse careers, diverse disciplines, all agreeing that this is a crisis. When Governor Kasich and I and Arnold were in Columbus, we didn't agree on every solution to it, but we agreed it's a crisis and we need to, we need to address it. And we need to let our democratic process work off the basis of facts, not lies, not distortions, that uh, present Americans with the facts. When presented with the facts on corona, look at what people have been willing to do. You know, stay in their homes for you know, more than a month. Uh, limit their activities. Wear masks. Wash constantly. You know, try to do social distancing. There's a level of responsibility that people will accept. But what people are missing is the solution to climate change is energy policy. If you're not putting these pollutant gases up in the atmosphere, and by the way, all over the world, people have noticed what the last month has been like, because some people are seeing blue sky for the first time in years. Uh, you know, the factories aren't chewing out all their stuff. In Venice, there was an incredible article, uh, became a front page article about how people, because the boats weren't churning through the canals, they could see into the water. You know, Ms. Secretary, I just want to actually, on that point, I just wonder, is there a silver lining here? I mean, there was an NPR report yesterday that cited some estimates that CO2 emissions could drop 5.5% this year because of the lockdowns over coronavirus. This would be the largest annual fall in CO2 emissions in, in recent memory in years. No, it's true. The problem is, the problem is it's temporary. Yeah. I mean, the minute people are told we're going to go back to work, 
boy, those factories are going to start to churn again. And you've already seen a deal to try to raise the price on oil. And people want to get back to a sort of old normality. We have to get back to a new, we have to go to a new normal. We have to create a new normal. And that is where we're transitioning. No, but I, I'm not one of those people who says you can do it by tomorrow or, you know, next few. It's going to take a while to transition. But scientists have given us nine years left out of the 12, they, they said, 2030, by which time we could avoid the worst consequences of climate change. So we still have the time to do it. And the way to do it is be promoting alternative, renewable, sustainable energy, be doing massive research as a nation, in fact, across nations, into battery storage, into whatever the next new thing might be that is a new technology. Someone might discover a way just to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and deal with it in a more effective, less costly way than we know how to now. There are all kinds of possibilities here. Donald Trump has not been willing to put them in front of the American people. He just wanted to pull out of the agreement. He's the only president in the world who made the judgment to get out of an agreement, which actually the United States helped lead and which we wrote for ourselves. He's the only president in the world who sees this differently. You know, actually, uh, picking up on that point, Secretary Kerry, you know, I think this crisis also shed some light on America's place in the world. And you were making a reference to the international order, which uh, we have led for generations. What is your reaction to Donald Trump's uh, decision to freeze funding of the WHO, his attacks on China in this particular moment? You know, I think it's interesting that you have used uh, for your initiative the metaphor of a world war, you know, mobilizing the world against the Nazi enemy. Uh, a lot of people have used that metaphor in the fight against coronavirus, but that is a global response that has to be led. So tell me what you think about uh, how Trump has dealt with our position in the global community leading up to this and now that we're in the midst of this crisis. Well, it's no secret anywhere in the international community that the United States has lost ground, serious ground, over the course of these uh, last years of the administration. Pulling out of the TPP, which was the trade agreement we worked with the 12 and 11 other countries in Asia, uh, handed the region to China under very lax rules, if any rules at all, in terms of their behavior. The president has attacked NATO, criticized our friends, ranging from the French to the Germans to the others, uh, and sided with uh, dictators in various parts of the world, uh, praised some of them. So our standing has changed. I've heard, I've had, I was at the Munich Security Conference, I was at the World Economic Forum, and I heard countless conversations during which people wondered why the United States has pulled back and, 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 and complaining about the impact of, of the absence of our leadership. Our leadership has been critical ever since World War II in helping to create rule of law and institutions that enforce that rule of law. And, and you take something like the World Health Organization. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say our Congress is working very effectively. Uh, there are a whole bunch of institutions here that aren't working effectively. And so don't be surprised that you find a hiccup here or there in some international institution. But the World Health Institution, this is the moment that they need to be strengthened. This is the moment they need to be fully funded 
and even plussed up in terms of their budget. And when the president pulls out support for the WHO, he's not he's not just hurting them immediately in terms of their budget for something he didn't need to do, by the way. They would fix the things that need to be fixed. But he is hurting us because the World Health Organization is critical to managing the health crises of the world. And if you don't want the next pandemic to hurt us, the last thing you ought to do is be defunding the World Health Organization. Secretary, the uh, New York Times is reporting this morning the Trump administration is expected on Thursday, that's today, to weaken regulations on the release of mercury and other toxic metals from oil and coal-fired power plants, another step toward rolling back health protections in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know if you've seen that report, but your reaction? Well, it's a tragedy. It's stupid. It's absolutely counterproductive. There are reasons that those rules were put in place because mercury kills people, because these pollutants kill people. Every doctor in America will tell you that uh, we have the largest cause of children being hospitalized every summer in the United States is environmentally induced asthma. And the American taxpayer spends $55 billion a year paying for the cost of that. That's just one example. People get cancer because regulations aren't enforced with respect to pollutant, with respect to uh, uh, mercury or arsenic or poisons that are in the in the uh, earth that are released. And we have rules to try to regulate that, which were hard fought for over many, many years. Unfortunately, there have always been groups of people who fight back against that. Rachel Carson in the 1960s uh, was fighting to protect people from DDT, which was being used... Uh, Against malaria, and people were being sprayed. Kids were just, the pictures of them just engulfed in the smoke of this fog of spray of DDT. And finally, uh, she won the battle all alone. She carried this battle against the biggest chemical companies uh, and against the government for a period of time. President Kennedy finally got a study uh, undertaken at the federal level, and, and she won the battle. She lost her life, by the way, to cancer one year later. But you go on to the next fight, nicotine and cigarettes. People put the selling of the nicotine products, knowing it was addictive, knowing it caused cancer, and they sold that. And, and there were a whole bunch of scientists out there who were hired by them to lie about it. And you had the same thing with acid rain. You had the same thing with ozone. You had the same thing now, you know, with, uh, you've had the same thing with climate. And you've also had the same kind of doubts being cast about the wisdom of shutting down the country and protecting us against coronavirus. I even heard somebody today attacking the modeling and the science. You're going to see that. That'll be one of the fights we're going to have now as people, you know, question it. But the bottom line is that the weakening of these regulations is now rampant. And the insidiousness of the Trump administration using the coronavirus moment as cover where people are highly preoccupied with health and safety and their lives, and they're attacking these rules, which will actually kill more Americans, make more people sick, is, is uh, it's, it, I mean, you couldn't, you can't dream that kind of thing up. Uh, you know, uh, George Orwell never conceived of quite such a topsy-turvy uh, situation, and I don't think anybody's ever dreamt that we'd have a president who was quite uh, such an enemy of common sense and facts and science. 
Secretary Kerry, uh, I want to ask you about both coronavirus and climate change as a national security crisis. And, you know, we always have a tendency to, to fight the last war. The, your former colleague in the Obama administration, Samantha Power, has a, a piece in uh, Time magazine where she uh, talks about how skewed our budgets have been toward kind of traditional concepts of national security. $180 billion to fight counterterrorism over the last uh, 10 years versus $2 billion on pandemic uh, and, and infectious disease programs. You are a supporter of Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee. Have you or will you be advising him on kind of rebalancing uh, our national security budgets? And to what extent do you think we will need to do that? I mean, are they really skewed way out of proportion in terms of dealing with the actual national security threats that are coming at us? Well, the answer is yes, they are, regrettably, but not that they're skewed in a way that, I mean, that, that we don't have to be providing the kind of security we are with respect to terrorism and to these uh, more traditional forms of threats. Those are going to continue, and we obviously have to adequately fund it. But what we've been doing is defunding the overall budget in a way. And the overall budget is on an automatic pilot where more and more money every year is going into entitlements. And the discretionary component of the budget is shrinking every single year. And we're not making up for that in any way <clears throat> because we had a trillion dollar tax cut that most of which went to the wealthiest people in the country, by the way. And that's been following this notion that all we have to do is keep cutting taxes. You have to pay for government at some point. You have to pay for roads. You have to pay to build a bridge. You want to have a decent transport system, not a bus in which you're crammed in so hard that it's, it's a battle to get to work and home again. You got to have more buses. You got to have more, uh, you know, better transportation structure. We have to build out our airports in America. This is what infrastructure is about. But you can't name one single national infrastructure program of which you are particularly proud today because there really isn't one. We, we just don't have a national infrastructure initiative in America that's worth talking about. And meanwhile, people are stuck in longer and longer traffic jams. We just, you know, it's harder and harder to get from it. And we're just not investing in the future, folks. And, um, you know, you got to be willing to push back against that at some point. Now, my, you know, I, I think you know, Vice President Biden, uh, I hope, will be our, our next president. Obviously, I'm supporting him. And he doesn't need my advice to know that he's going to fight to try to do both of those things. Defend America in the appropriate way with the support for our military and for our counterterrorism and the, the CIA and other initiatives. But also uh, try to find a way to have a fairer country in which the resources we have are allocated more effectively towards the things we need to do. And I think you need somebody. I know he will be a president who doesn't need to be educated by anybody because he spent, you know, an enormous, what, 30 years or so on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has a full understanding of our interconnectedness in today's world. You can't solve coronavirus without having other countries also be part of the solution in a world where you're selling goods all around the world. You can't solve the problem of climate change without getting every country to participate, but particularly the 20 top developed nations, which account for 85% of all the emissions. And you certainly can't deal with cyber and cyber warfare, which is more and more of a threat without dealing with the international community. So, 
I think Joe Biden understands that you can't just shut yourself off and start running around the world saying you're going to make America number one by ignoring other people. The way you make America number one is by leading, bringing the world together to solve these problems. Secretary, uh, before when we were talking about the United States standing in the world, uh, you talked about the president's praise of dictators. And one comment uh, that the president made recently that uh, stood out at me was his praise of Mohammed bin Salman in uh, Saudi Arabia, calling him my friend. And this was in the context of negotiating the um, oil agreement with uh, the Saudis and the Russians. I wanted to get your reaction to both what the president said, calling MBS my friend, and also in the context of that oil agreement, is that helpful to the cause you are promoting or not? Well, the, we're going to have oil in our lives for years to come. It's not the, the existence of oil. I mean, we need oil for certain things. We need oil for plastics. We need oil for antibiotics even and other kinds of things. But the truth is that um, the, I think it was a Saudi minister who 30 years ago or more said the stone age didn't end because we ran out of stones and the oil age is not going to end because we run out of oil. And what he meant was what is happening today. We're in a technological revolution where we now realize that the impact of burning fossil fuels is harming and creating a serious long-term challenge. And we're beginning to migrate away from that. And uh, I think that the president is, is obviously not a friend of this movement and has resisted enormously providing incentives and other kinds of efforts to encourage a more rapid transition away from fossil fuel, which is what we really need to do. But we can do that without injuring our economy. We can do that without hurting the marketplace. Uh, the marketplace, in fact, is already reflecting this. Solar is now cheaper than coal. And uh, the fastest growing job in America was solar panel, solar uh, power technician. And the second fastest was wind turbine technician. So the marketplace is already embracing this future. Cheap coal will not help it. But you just saw former Republican Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State Jim Baker join with former Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State George Shultz. And, and both of them very much bona fide conservatives in America, and they're recommending that we price carbon. And that is, an, I think that's going to happen at some point. So I think that fossil fuels days are in its largeness, in the size of which it has been in our economy, are numbered. And I think Saudi Arabia and other countries are trying hard to figure out how to diversify and, and build a future that isn't dependent on of course, as you know, the U.S. intelligence community has concluded that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, was likely responsible for the murder of the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, raising the question as to how we deal with somebody like that. You know, this gets to the larger conundrum or tension between human rights and other national security interests. Uh, here we have a guy who was saying a lot of the right things that we wanted to hear about reforming his country. And then it was at the same time, though, imprisoning dissidents, harassing them, kidnapping them, and in the case of Khashoggi, murdering one. And I just, this is a tension that's been with us for some time, but it's particularly stark in this instance. 
Well, it is. Yeah, no, obviously uh, stark in that instance. But look, we we live in an imperfect world. I mean, it's it's a complicated place, folks. Uh, nobody ever said it was easy. It hasn't been easy for centuries. And and we've made the slow progress of human beings of moving from the you know first millennium and the and the and the dark ages to the middle ages to the to the enlightenment and the renaissance and the age of reason and all these you know transformations that have taken place in the course of history. I mean, the rights of man emerged in the 1700s and we began to uh, debate in America what kind of country we wanted to be based on some of that. There's been this slow, long process. And, you know, the last century was filled with several wars, two of them world wars, uh, and then the Cold War, of course, and Korea, Vietnam, and so forth. We're actually living in an age where fewer people are dying than at any time in human history. We're actually living in an age where diseases are being, you know, uh, cured, uh, and, and we're making amazing medical uh, discoveries. Uh, surely without the medical capacity we have now, we might be dealing with more like 1918 uh, than what we have. And and I heard somebody today angry about the models on which Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks have been making their judgments uh, because so many fewer people are going to die. Are you kidding me? We should be excited that the models have worked and we made decisions that mean a lot fewer people are going to die. So I, I view the world as moving inexorably in a direction. And because I'm an American, because I believe in democracy, because I love our freedom, uh, I believe that ultimately <clears throat> that's an inexorable spirit. It's a, it, it's a, there's a, you know, sort of a gene, if you will, in every human being that wants to be free and independent, live their life to the fullest capacity possible. And America, I think, is a spectacular formula for doing it. We're in a bad moment in that. We've been in bad moments before. I remember 1968, when our streets were filled with protesters, when presidential candidate had been assassinated, Martin Luther King assassinated, Edgar Evers assassinated, streets were burning, cities were rioting, pipe bombs were going off. Uh, we had radicals with machine guns. Uh, killing. I mean, it was a tough time, folks. But we yeah. got out of there. We had a president who lied to the country and ultimately was impeached and ultimately resigned. So we will get through this. And I'm just an optimist. I believe we're going to, you know, we have the capacity to make things better. And we have to exercise all of our rights as American citizens to make sure we're doing our best to do it. Secretary Kerry, I've got one final question. You've been very generous with your time. So thank you. It's not as if we're all crowded with meetings now. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I don't really, I don't really have a play today after that. Hey, hey, you know, I, I could go on for hours, but your guy is telling us we have to wrap here. So, um, you know, you mentioned your support for uh, Vice President Biden. I wonder if, at this point, you think he's got a robust enough climate change plan. It's no secret that, you know, a lot of you know, young people in America, a lot of people who are really exercised over, uh, about this issue, that he has not lit a fire under them up, up until this point. He, he's not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with her Green New Deal. He's not even Jay Inslee, who centered his campaign around climate change. Um, so do you think his plan 
as of now is strong enough? Will you be advising him to do more throughout this campaign? Talk about uh, the Biden climate crisis plan. Well, I have, I have complete and total confidence in, in Joe Biden's commitment to readiness to take on the climate crisis and to take it on in full. And he has not only put out a fulsome plan to do that, a realistic one, but I know that he's working uh, with folks right now to add certain things to that plan. And I, I have great confidence. I mean, look, he's been part of the administration that helped bring about the Paris Agreement. He's been involved and supportive in those efforts as well as with China, helping to bring them to the table. And I, I have you know, not one ounce of doubt whatsoever about the vice president's readiness to put America back in the place of premier leadership on this and to get the job done. And I think that, you know, there wasn't really that much difference, to be honest with you, between a lot of the plans that were on the table, most of them. And so he's got an ambitious notion of having the move to decarbonize our power grid as fast as possible and we'll undertake to do that to move our transportation grid to electric vehicles or hydrogen uh, other potential we have to uh, he knows build out the infrastructure to have a grid in america that functions for the nation on a whole he's committed to doing that he's going to uh, try to create the greatest innovation, technology, research, R&D program we've ever had in the country to accelerate this. So I, I think as, as young folks hear him, and by the way, you know, AOC and Jay Inslee and a whole bunch of other folks are going to be out there campaigning for Joe Biden because they have confidence he's going to get this done. So I think that um, people just need to you know, read carefully and listen carefully to what's put on the table over the course of this campaign. One more uh, question. You mentioned you had some uh, plans for Earth Day coming up next week. Can you tell us more specifically what they are? Well, we hope to have, uh, we're going to have a couple of town halls, but do them virtually. I hope we're going to have Bill Nye, the science guy, have him uh, on board to help explain some of the stuff to people and work on it. We hope to have a couple of the governors I mentioned, or one of them anyway, and uh, possibly uh, secretary, former secretaries of state uh, who will come together to talk about it. So we're, we're putting it together right now. We're finalizing it, but we're definitely going to have a couple of virtual town halls. And I hope people will stay tuned in to worldwarzero.com and go to the site and enlist and help uh, to build the movement in this country that will improve our health create many, many more better jobs uh, and provide greater national security for, for us as well as the people. Okay. Well, we will certainly be monitoring what you and World War Zero are up to. And uh, thank you again for the time. It's been a very illuminating discussion. Well, great to be with you guys and stay well. <laughs> you too. Thanks to former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon. 